13, 1 to 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Okay, before we pray, I, I just need to do one thing. Help me out with this. He is risen. Thank you. That was missing. Um, And I was reminded as soon as I walked in here that Easter is a season. We're only on the second Sunday out of seven, so completely appropriate. Um, Let's bow our heads and our hearts as we come to this passage. Father in heaven, indeed, Jesus is risen, and we rejoice. Uh, We are so thankful that he is risen from the grave, that uh, death, the last enemy, uh, was defeated uh, and is being defeated and will be defeated, that uh, we have been saved, that we are being saved, that we will be saved. Um, it's an amazing thing to, to come through uh, the, the course of a year <clears throat> and be able to, 
pay attention to these different moments uh, in your story, to your birth, to your life and your teaching, to your death, to your resurrection, to your ascension, to the giving of the Spirit, and, and, and to be able at each point uh, to reflect on how that story, though it took place so long ago and in a very different place, uh, and, and, and what feels like a very far remove from us, um, nevertheless, is the story within which we live and that shapes our life, uh, our lives as individuals, and, and maybe even more than that, our life uh, as a congregation. You have said that what shapes us more than anything else is your word. Uh, you have said uh, that you have given us your word in order to reveal yourself uh, to us, uh, to reveal to us the kind of God that you are, uh, you have said that your word is living and active, that it, it pierces joint and marrow, that it pierces to our hearts, that it convicts us of sin, that it reminds us of your grace uh, and your mercy. Um, Father, all of us need those things in, in different measure uh, today. All of us need to be formed and shaped uh, by your word. And so I, I am grateful, I am always grateful uh, that it is your promises in Scripture. It's your promise that your word does not return to you void, um, but that you, Holy Spirit, uh, are, are living and active and are powerful and able uh, to apply your word uh, to each one of us <clears throat> and to our corporate life uh, as a church exactly as we need it. And so I pray that you would do what you have promised to do. I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would uh, illuminate uh, our minds to receive uh, truth, that you would soften uh, what would be hearts of stone uh, that you have replaced with hearts of flesh, that you would soften them to receive uh, and to be changed, um, to know that because we are reconciled to you, because you have reconciled the world to yourself, <clears throat> because of that we can have reconciliation with each other. Would we be people who seek peace? Would we be people who seek truth? Would we be people uh, who seek uh, to love one another in a way uh, that the world could, could look at us and could recognize you uh, by our love for one another? Um, Lord, we pray for all of these things uh, as we come to this passage uh, today. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, if you remember where we were two weeks ago, um, you, you can see that the scene has now shifted. Uh, as we turn into the 13th chapter of, of John, uh, it shifts. And this, this first verse um, is about as beautiful a transition as I can think of in all of Scripture. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And that verse sums up everything that's going to follow. Um, <clears throat> and perhaps even what follows after the Gospel of John. Um, that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, everything that he's about to do is him loving them and loving us. Uh, to the very end. Jesus' public ministry is at an end. So two weeks ago, we looked at the last words that Jesus would have said publicly. 
Um, now he's in private with his disciples. Uh, and these next several chapters are some of the most intimate in the entire Bible, not, not only in terms of the relationship that we see on display between Jesus and his disciples as he unfolds to them uh, the mysteries of the Trinity uh, and of the love, the shared unanimous love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the world uh, that sent Jesus into the world uh, to die and to save sinners. Um, but also we see the intimacy in the Trinity itself. We're actually going to get glimpses uh, and views into conversations taking place between Father and Son in the Spirit uh, that, are, that are remarkable uh, and that we need to take note of. Um, our preaching schedule this year, we're going to look at these first two chapters. We're going to look at chapter 13 and 14, and that'll get us to Pentecost, and we'll break there. Um, and the plan as of now is to then come back um, and finish up uh, or, or pick up in the Gospel of John again um, after, after next Christmas. Um, last week, if you remember, um, or two weeks ago, excuse me, two weeks ago, um, Bradley uh, looked at those last things that Jesus said, and he, he talked about them being a study in unbelief, right? He talked about uh, Jesus laying bare uh, the results of our unbelief, that we become like what we worship. Um, and on the other hand, the root of our unbelief, that we pursue the glory that comes from men rather than that which comes from God. I kind of want to stick with that theme. These, these 20 verses here, um, there is a lot going on. This is one of these passages that, that would admit of, of many sermons. Um, but what I want us to look at um, is these verses as a study in faith. Uh, and just as Bradley looked at the results and the root of unbelief, I want to look at the same thing here, the results and the root um, of, of faith. Um, Unsurprisingly, it'll, it'll, it'll just kind of turn on, on, on its head what Bradley said uh, two weeks ago, that the root of faith um, is, is the recognition and the pursuit and the love of the glory that comes from God and not that of men. And the results of faith, it's actually the same thing. We become like what we worship, only whereas in unbelief, we become like the idols of our hearts. So you remember that Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah um, who said, these people who worship idols that have eyes and don't see and ears and don't hear are just like them. When we worship the living God, when we worship Jesus, when we worship the one in whose image we're made, we become more and more what we're meant to be, more and more alive. Um, the way I want to go about this is by looking mostly at two people in this passage and looking at, at, their, uh, at, their, at their faith. Um, the first may surprise you. I want to look at Jesus. I want to look at Jesus' faith. And to be clear, when we talk about Jesus' faith, of course we're not talking about him having a saving faith. We're not talking about him having faith by which he's put into a right relationship with God. Jesus lives a life free of sin. He lives the fully human life that we are all meant to live. Uh, he doesn't need to be put into right relationship. On the contrary, he's the one that actually satisfies 
in our place the covenant of works, the one that said, do this and live. Jesus actually did that uh, for us. And yet, at the same time, because he's fully human, we can look at his life as a life lived in perfect trust and obedience to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, you can, you can see the, the whole Trinity active here. The Son lives a life of perfect trust in the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what a human life is supposed to look like. And here we can actually look at the nature of Jesus' faith, his trust, uh, and, and gain a lot of that. Uh, after that, I want to look at Peter. Not that he's a perfect model of faith here in this passage, but we see an interesting turn that I think we could say is part of Peter's growing faith. Uh, here in this passage. So, first of all, let's take a look at what Jesus believes. Um, we actually hear a lot about this uh, just in these first several verses. Um, it says, at the beginning, Jesus knew uh, that his hour had come, and that should, that should make our ears perk up, right? Jesus has constantly been saying, my hour is not yet here, not yet here, and now he knows his hour has come uh, to depart out of the world. He knows that the Father has given all things into his hands. Um, he knows that he has come from God and is going back to God. And yet, at the same time, he also knows that this is the hour of darkness. He knows that the devil is having his hour. Um, here in, 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 this, in this moment. And if you look at what that produces in Jesus, as he knows what is in front of him, as he knows of the betrayal that's about to come, as he knows of the trial and the crucifixion, his soul is troubled again. He had said that in chapter 12, now is my soul troubled. And if you look at verse 21, just one verse past our passage, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. I just want us to notice one thing about this. I think this is tremendously instructive and important for us to realize about the nature of faith. You can have faith that is as strong as you can imagine. You could have what is called perfect faith. You could have faith like the Son of God himself. And it does not mean that your soul will never be troubled. It does not mean that you will live a life free of worry, free of anxiety, free even in a certain way of doubt. <clears throat> Jesus is in a place where his world is being rocked. And what we can learn from this is that when your world is being rocked, it doesn't mean that your faith is necessarily deficient. In fact, what it could mean, in our case, in, in, in the case of those of us who are sinful, uh, who are fallen, uh, and who need to be made more and more like Jesus, and who see that happen progressively over the course of our lives, it could be that having our world rocked is the very means by which God is strengthening our faith. 
It doesn't mean that our faith is deficient. It could be the very means by which God is perfecting our faith. That's the first thing that I, that I want us to see just as we, as we look at, at Jesus uh, and look at his faith. Um, I gave you, by the way, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, um, I gave you uh, as a quote uh, on the front of the bulletin the 21st question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, this was fresh in my mind. Dan Allred just led a really good class in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, we also use this sometimes in our, in our liturgy for the table. Um, the question, what is, what is true faith? Um, and there's, there's a, a couple things that I wanted to point out about this, this definition. One is, simply here, uh, it says that true faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture. It's also a wholehearted trust. Um, it's not just acknowledging that things are true. It's not just knowing the truths of Scripture. Um, it is a trust. Uh, faith is um, a capacity to rest on God's goodness and his trustworthiness um, in a way that enables us uh, to obey. Um, in that way, you might hear echoes of, of what we said all during the fall about the fear of the Lord, right? An awe-filled orientation toward God in all aspects of our lives that enables obedience. Life of faith is one uh, not only of knowing uh, the truth, but of resting on it. Um, and we see Jesus doing that here for us. Um, resting uh, on, on God's goodness in a way that none of us uh, has ever been asked to do. What about Peter? I want to take a look at Peter in, in this passage. There's only two disciples uh, mentioned by name in this passage. One is Judas, one is Peter. We don't hear or see a lot about what is going on um, with Judas. Uh, in fact, we hear more <clears throat> about uh, the machinations of the devil in, in Judas's life. Um, but any time that I see Judas and, and, and Peter together, uh, it always reminds me of this verse in 2 Corinthians 7 that I think is just an extremely significant, important verse uh, in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas and Peter illustrate this verse. Judas and Peter are both about to do things. They're both about to betray their Lord in different ways. They're both brought to a deep level of grief by their actions. And yet, for one of them, that grief leads to death. But for the other, for Peter, somehow that grief prepares him for a repentance, a turning back to his Lord that will ultimately restore him to him, <clears throat> that will lead to salvation without regret. I'm always brought up short by that phrase, salvation without regret, uh, because a life free of regret um, can feel tremendously elusive, can't it? Um, I think we see an interesting turn that Peter makes. 
um, that gives us some insight into why it is that for him, his grief is going to produce repentance that leads to salvation without regret. And it's simply this. Um, it, 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 it probably stood out to you as we read it. In verses 4 to 11, there's this interaction between Jesus and Peter. Uh, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. He comes to Peter, who protests and says, no, 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 you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And then Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So I want to look at two things. I want to, I want to look at, first of all, what was the mistake that Peter was making when he was protesting? And then, why the turn? Why does he shift the way that he does? And how does this help us understand the nature of faith? Um, <clears throat> the mistake that he was making, I think you can put it pretty simply, he was failing to understand the gospel. He might not have put it in those terms, but he was failing to understand the gospel. What do I mean by that? Peter must have been thinking one of two things. Either, surely my feet aren't so dirty that I need you to wash them for me. Surely it's not that bad. I don't smell that bad, do I? Um, or, more likely, he was shocked to see the one that he had called Lord and Teacher taking this low, low place. And this was the lowest of the low. Um, we get a description of how Jesus dresses himself. He is dressed in the outfit of a slave uh, when he removes his outer garment and ties a towel around his waist. And in fact, washing visitors' feet, which was something you needed to do in those days. People did a lot of walking in open-toed shoes, and their feet, yes, did get very dirty and smelly. And so it would be a normal thing to offer your guests water uh, to wash their feet when they arrived. And it was considered such a low place to be the one doing the washing that many Jews would make sure that they wouldn't have Jewish slaves doing that work. Only Gentile slaves would be allowed to do this. So this is the lowest place for Peter to be taking. Um, and probably uh, Peter is saying, this is, just, this is just inappropriate. What are you doing uh, taking, taking this low place? <clears throat> Peter either doesn't understand the depth of his need or he doesn't understand the depth of Jesus' love for him. He either doesn't get that he's much worse than he thinks he is or he doesn't get that Jesus' love for him is such that he's willing to go to the depths and to go lower than he could possibly imagine. Again, either way, he's failed to understand the gospel because that's what the gospel tells us. The gospel tells us precisely that, yes, we really are that bad. It tells us that we're worse off, we're more sinful than we've ever dared to imagine. But at the same time, it tells us that God loves us more than we've ever dared to hope. And, of course, there's one thing that we look at that tells us that. Um, when Jesus says, I've given you an example here, he's, he's doing something in this moment that in some ways is just a foreshadowing of what he's about to do. 
Because although I said that washing someone's feet was the lowest place you could imagine, even that isn't as low as being hung on a cross to die. Um, that was the lowest of the low. Um, when we look at the cross, we see these two things. Yes, we're that bad. Yes, our, our, our sin required this as the remedy, the giving and the death of the Son of God. And yet, at the same time, it tells us that's what God was willing to do. God's love for us is so deep that he was willing to give his Son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Another way you might put this, Peter seems to want Jesus free of suffering. He doesn't want things to be that bad. He doesn't want Jesus to have to suffer on his behalf. And he probably isn't quite ready to consider the implications of what this means for him. <clears throat> what Jesus is putting on display here is what he's been saying throughout this gospel, that what he pursues is not the glory that comes from men, but the glory that, that comes from God. He's willing to take the low place here. He's willing to take the low place on the cross. Because at the root of his faith, at the root of the faith, the true faith that we're meant to have, is that pursuit of the glory that comes from God. Rather than the glory that comes from, from men. But if that's the root of faith, what does it result in? What are the implications of faith? Jesus speaks to this in this, in this passage as well. <clears throat> he says, do you understand what I've done? He says, I've given you this example, and you ought to do likewise. You ought to do as I've done. I've taken this low place. You ought, therefore, to be willing to take the low place. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. This would be the question that I would put to each of you. And it's the question that I would put to myself as well. Where is it in my life? Where is it in your life? that you're being called to take the low place? Where is it that if you were truly to pursue the glory that comes from God and to set aside the pursuit of the glory that comes from men, which is what most of us pursue 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, it's just so natural. But if you were to set that aside and to pursue the glory that comes from God the way that Jesus shows us what that looks like, where is it that God would be calling you to take the low place? What I think is so remarkable about this scene 
and what I think is really significant for understanding the turn that Peter makes is that Peter, Peter doesn't go from having bad theology to having good theology. You know, we see him misunderstanding what's happening. We don't necessarily see him getting all of his doctrinal ducks in a line, right? He's just presented with a simple question from Jesus, which is simply this. Peter, do you want me or not? The question that's put in front of Peter, Jesus says, if I don't wash you, then you have no share in me. And that's what changes things for Peter. Um, It's really similar to uh, what we saw earlier in chapter 6. Remember in chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and there's this huge crowd around him. But then he starts talking. And as he talks and says things that are confusing and hard, more and more people fall away, one group and then another, until finally at the end of the chapter, only the disciples are left. And he turns to them and says, do you want to go away as well? And it's Peter who says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I would say if you want to understand the nature of faith, if you want your faith to be strengthened, if you aren't sure that you've put faith in Christ before and you want to ask, how, how does that happen? The most important thing you can do is simply to look at Jesus, is simply to consider him. Um, we've had these, go- these, these copies of the Gospel of John floating around uh, since last year when we, when we first started this, this study. Um, and, and I would just continue to recommend, just spend time, just sit and read this. If you have friends that you're praying for, that they would come to faith, maybe the most significant thing that you can do is to ask them, would you read this? And, and, and if you're lucky, would you have a conversation with me afterwards? But mostly just, would you read this? Would you look at this man? Would you look at Jesus? Would you consider who he is? Considering who Jesus was and the significance of Jesus to his own life is what causes Peter's faith to turn here in this passage to go from a place of rejecting Jesus' love for him to one that says, not only can you do this, but I need this because I need you. If all of this seems upside down, it's because it is upside down. That's the nature of the gospel. Um, As we often say, the way up is down. And in this gospel, the way to the glory that comes from God is the cross. Um, Peter did not get this right away. And again, I don't don't think he necessarily gets it completely right now. Um, Jesus himself says, you don't understand what I'm doing, but you will later. He said, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Um, It's interesting, this scripture that he quotes, it's from Psalm 41. 
Uh, he says, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Um, Jesus, we know, is thoroughly versed in the Psalms. Um, and so when you see him quoting a psalm, it's often really instructive to go look at the whole psalm and see what might have been on his mind um, as, he, as, he, as he quoted it. If you look at the last verses of Psalm 41, here's what it says. So here's Psalm 41, 9 to 13, which is the end. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. For all that Jesus knows about what is about to happen, he's also able to express a trust that in the end his enemy would not shout in triumph over him. Not Judas, not Satan, not even death would be able to shout in triumph uh, over this one because he rose. But the remarkable thing about the resurrection of the Son of God is that although it says in, in Psalm 41, the psalmist says, raise me up that I may repay them. Jesus is the one who raises not in order to repay his enemies, but with forgiveness. If I could quote a Christmas song, he rises with healing in his wings. There's something about the resurrection that changes everything. Resurrection life, a life that rises from the grave, um, on the one hand, by definition, it's not an unbroken life free of death. It is life that has passed through death. In that regard, it is not what you and I want. None of us wants to pass through death in order to get to life. But what's on offer here is a life fit for the ages because it's a life that's stronger than death. It's a life in which death has done its worst and has been defeated. I'm excited to be in these chapters with you guys. I'm excited to be looking at these conversations that Jesus is going to have with his disciples and with his Father and for the insights that they're going to give us. We've, we've passed Easter in our calendar, but we're still walking toward it for a little while here in the Gospel of John. Before we come to this table, would you bow your heads and pray with me?